This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall respond thematically to a couple of comments made recently by our resident Trump supporter, Sam, who called in seeking unity. Now, broadly, he was looking to agree to disagree on some topics while finding common cause on others. I'm completely down with that idea, and I have since proposed a podcast book club in which we shall read uh, Ralph Nader's book, Unstoppable, The Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. And while I don't mind agreeing to disagree on some things, I am a real stickler for insisting that we actually agree on exactly what we're disagreeing about. Uh, So in Sam's call, he said this. Yes, we're going to disagree on how economy should work. You may think capitalism is two shades away from slavery. I think capitalism is the greatest reason abject poverty has been in free fall relative to human history. You may think personal freedom can be dangerous. I think personal freedom is the essence of social justice because the ultimate minority is the individual. So he's trying to describe things that we should be able to amicably disagree about, but he does a a really terrible job of guessing how I feel about individualism and has presented a false dichotomy regarding capitalism. So I thought I would take this opportunity today to craft an episode that addresses both of these issues, featuring clips from The David Pakman Show, Economic Update, The Laura Flanders Show, Sustainable Human on YouTube, the podcast Upstream, and The School of Life also on YouTube in order to clarify some of my thoughts on capitalism, consumerism, and individualism. But first, a quick inoculation, let's say, against uh, cognitive shutdown syndrome, which is a term that I just made up to describe the way people sometimes lose the ability to think clearly and take in more information when they hear a word or phrase that they become fixated on to the exclusion of all else. Uh, Today, we need to inoculate ourselves in preparation for the use of the term socialism. And my friend David Pakman has a good primer on that. Many don't know much about the history of socialism or even really understand what socialism actually is. They hear the word socialism and they think of authoritarian regimes like the Soviet Union or North Korea, or even worse, they might say, hey, socialism doesn't work when they're having a conversation about someone like Barack Obama, implying that Obama is himself a socialist. Now, it should go without saying that Obama is not a socialist, but this actually has to be explained to some people. This is true regardless of whether you are for or against socialism or communism or capitalism or social democracy. I am not a socialist, but I can only understand that if I actually know what socialism is. So let's begin there. Defined by a textbook, socialism is the collective ownership of a society's means of production. Means of production could be non-human resources used to produce things of economic value like real estate or farmland, natural resources, equipment, buildings, infrastructure, roads, and collective ownership of these things meaning workers or the public 
own them. Some define socialism as a system by which social equality can be achieved. In this broader way of thinking about it, socialism could mean any kind of socialistic philosophies or attitudes or tendencies, or a system that combines orthodox socialist practices with other constructs like capitalism. For instance, you could say that some Scandinavian countries are socialistic by modern standards, not because they have a system where the government or workers own everything, but because they have a system where there's a relatively greater amount of intervention by democratic government to protect socialistic ideals like egalitarianism, civil rights, equal education, environmentalism, and the prevention of abuse by actors in the free market. These are capitalist societies, and they're definitely not realizations of socialism as defined in a political science glossary, but these are manifestations of socialistic inclinations, especially when compared to what goes on in many other developed countries. Socialism is an extremely broad umbrella term to describe a wide range of political, social, and economic systems, movements, and ideas. So the point is, don't get in an argument with anyone about socialism until you have a 15-minute discussion about the definitions of socialism to make sure you're both talking about the same thing. Now with that out of the way, we can get to the first main clip, which directly addresses Sam's supposition that I may find personal freedom to be dangerous, followed by a series of clips that lays out a vision for a new economic philosophy and an argument for why we need one. I want to deal with a question sent in by Jamie, and a very, very good one. He says something like the following, that capitalism is often equated with individualism, to be contrasted with socialism. That is, somehow capitalism celebrates the individual, whereas socialism celebrates the community or the society as a whole. Is that a fair representation, says Jamie? And he asks for me to comment. All right, let me comment. This is a matter of history. And like so often in many questions, it's the history that gives us the answer. Here the history we need is the history of the birth of capitalism. When did capitalism become the dominant economic system? Well, it begins in Great Britain, in England, back in the 17th century and then moves to Western Europe in the 18th century, kind of the explosive event being the French Revolution of 1789, when feudalism, the system that existed before, very top-down, rigid system with the king at the top and all of that, it gets overthrown by capitalism. In England and in France and most other places, a good bit of violence attended this overthrow of the old system and the establishment of capitalism. But what's interesting and what responds to Jamie's question is that when these fights happened, the fights of the English to overthrow feudalism there, the fights of the French, really like the fights in the United States to get rid of the old feudal King George in our war of independence, the claim was that capitalism, the new system, would free individuals. They wouldn't be slaves the way they once had been. They wouldn't be serfs 
the way they had been for a thousand years of feudalism. They would be free individuals. This notion that capitalism brought freedom to the individual, a chance to realize all of his or her potential uh, by their own exertion of mind and body uh, to get to the fullest possible life. Capitalism celebrated the individual. Nice idea, good story, had some truth to it. They always do these stories. But here was the problem. As capitalism settled in, replacing feudalism in England, in Western Europe, eventually everywhere else in the world, a growing number of people living in capitalism realized that the promise of individualism was not being delivered. Oh, sure, a small proportion of individuals were free in the sense of being able to realize their potential, to develop their skills, their brains, their intellect, their understanding, their bodies, to become full human beings. But as they looked around at the mass of people living in capitalism, the mass of employees getting up, going to work each day, eking out a, a bare living with a wage or a salary that kept them light years from realizing their potential. You know, the kind of people written about in Charles Dickens's novels of early capitalist England or Emile Zola's novels of early capitalist France, or Maxim Gorky's novels of early capitalist Russia. When these folks looked around, they realized that what capitalism really did was provide for the individualism of the few, and the subordination, and the stunted lives, and the lost opportunities, and the denied potential of the many. And those people's criticisms became known as socialism, that they wanted a society that really did this freedom for everybody, not just for the rich, not just for the few, not even for those handfuls who could emerge out of awful personal and social conditions and rise above them. Heroes that those people were, they don't substitute for making it better for everybody. The socialists wanted to give everybody a real chance, a real shot at realizing their potential. And so they called themselves socialists. It's not that they don't put the individual first. It's really quite different. It's that they care about all of the individuals. They want the whole community to get a chance, not just those born into wealth or able by good luck and lots of effort to rise out of the pulling down that confronts the mass of people. So yes, capitalism came into the world boasting about an individualism, but it delivered that individualism as it still does to a tiny percentage of the population leaving the rest as critics open to and interested in the socialist alternative, which says you got to do it for everybody. Society is not about the individual. It's about the team.
like in a good sports struggle. You need the team. You need to celebrate what each one contributes. Develop each one's ability to contribute. You'll do much better than if all you do is focus on a handful of quote-unquote stars. data and the research is just skewed. You say, for one thing, we're studying the wrong sorts of groups. You call them weird societies. I'd love you to spell that out. And then the other is that when the research that you dig up, when you go and look at people outside of these weird societies, some of the assumptions we make about intention and motivation and how to change behavior are just totally wrong. So a lot of the research that's been going on in recent years to say, well, how do people actually behave? It's been done by professors in the States, in Australia, in Israel, and they do what's convenient, right? They just turn to their students and they run tests with their students and they say, oh, this is what people are like. And then one researcher went off and did the same test with forest living communities in Indonesia or native people in all sorts of very different cultures, came back with completely different results. And he said, the students who are at the doorstep of all these professors, they're weird. And what that means is we're Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. So that's the acronym weird. And actually, they're not like most people at all. In fact, the way that the weird ones behave is at one end of the spectrum. So you cannot just interview your students and say this is what people are like. You're getting a very, very skewed particular version of humanity. So he launched off a whole area of research and looking at the diversity of people. And sometimes when people live in very market-based economies, they behave in one way. When they're based in economies that are subsistence, that don't have markets, families share, their behavior can be quite different. It just shows the variety of human behavior, we adapt and respond to the conditions around us. So what do you recommend that we do? One thing, can we actually grow and be green? Can you run a business in that kind of warm, just, safe part of the donor? Yes, I think you can, because we need to transform our economies. Today, they are deeply divisive, giving rewards to the 1%, and degenerative, running down the living planet on which we depend. We need to transform them so that they are distributive, sharing value with everyone who helps create it, and regenerative. That's an amazing transformation that needs to happen. And in that process, there are very clearly some industries that really need to grow. Solar capacity, right? Renewable energy, that's a wonderful growth field. So if someone's working a company in that area, of course there's going to be growth there. That's an opportunity. So we need to grow back into balance. The incomes of people living on very, very low incomes, their incomes need to grow back into balance. So there are opportunities for sure. But we've certainly interviewed people on this program who have tried. They've had very well-intentioned businesses, I'm thinking. You mentioned Anita Roddick in your book. We've had Ben and Jerry, um, the folks from the ice cream company in Vermont, on this show. And they both of them came into the same conflict with their shareholders, that their kind of mission of being regenerative or beneficial to their community um, wasn't so beneficial to the shareholders. And they, at the end of the day, kind of lost their companies to buyouts, or at least Ben & Jerry's did. So this is the fascinating, I think, it's going to be a psychological drama between what I would call 21st century companies 
and regenerative design and 20th century capitalism. Because the 21st century designer says, how many benefits can I layer into this company so that I can actually give some away? That's the Ben and Jerry's mentality, the body shop mentality. 20th century capital finance says, how much value can I extract from this? Mm. Now, when you try and start a 21st century company that's generating value and giving away to the community, the environment, and you're going to be financed by these financiers who are just trying to maximize and extract the value they can capture. That is what pulls them down. And that's why we need to transform finance. So we need new kinds of financing that actually say, I want to also get a fair return for my money. I want to give some away as well. And that's why I back these companies. It just shows the design possibilities are out there, whether it's designing a regenerative city or a regenerative company. They need to be backed up by finance that actually unleashes the power of what they know they can create. You've used the word design a few times. Design does require someone or group of people to be designing and kind of implementing a design. So what's the role for governance in all of this? Um, If you didn't like industrial capitalism, didn't like finance capitalism, didn't like state socialism, who helps to direct our design in this new direction? I love that question. I do use the word design very intentionally because I think in the 20th century, economists were desperate to be like physicists. They thought this was this reputable science and make it like physics. And there's all these laws that the economy follows. Wrong choice. The career that economists should actually take, career shift from controlling the levers of some mechanical economy. Levers don't exist. Economy is not a machine. We should be like garden designers. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, the economy is more like a garden ever evolving and changing. And, and some people say that sounds very laissez faire. Well, they've never done a hard day's work in the garden because it's digging and weeding and pruning and you shape and design your garden. So who are the designers? I think we're all designers. Anybody who's designing a new d- suburb of a city is a designer of the 21st century economy. And they're bringing in these regenerative principles and distributive principles. What we need from government, government is to create and enable people to create the legal business models that allow them to put purpose at the heart of their company, that allow them and make it easy to be employee-owned and to have finance that supports this regenerative design. We need governments to ban single-use plastics, Mm. ban putting useful materials in landfill, and give a long, legal and loud message about that so everybody knows that's going to be phased out within five years, guys. So start changing a business right now. So put those frameworks in place so that we get a regenerative economy happening. You say more maypole dancing. So maypole dancing. <laughs> so I think economics, uh, economists are, tr- are treated very, you know, very serious. These are the real specialists. I think of that as sort of Lord of the Dance, the, the kingpin dancer at the front and all the other subjects and all the other ways of thinking behind like a chorus line. What we actually need is maypole dancing where you've each got your ribbon and you're weaving in and out. So John Maynard Keynes, uh, John Stuart Mill, the great philosophers of the past, they understood this. They said a truly great economist is also a historian and a mathematician, understands sociology, understands political science. An economic angle on life is just one part of the whole. We have to be rounded and work together and, and really embed economics back in the social world from which it came. Kate Rayworth's book is Donut Economics. It's my new favorite economics textbook. Seven ways to think like a 21st century economist. It's just out from Chelsea Green. Really great talking with. seem to think that capitalism is about 
buying and selling things, using the market as a way of distributing goods from the folks who produce it to folks who consume it. Markets are indeed an important phenomenon, but they don't have any unique relationship with capitalism. For example, in the American slave South, a different system, a slave system, the goods produced by slaves, for example, cotton, were sold. So you had a market in cotton. It actually had a market in slaves, too. So things were bought and sold all over the place. Markets existed, but you didn't have capitalism. You didn't have an employer and an employee. That's the core of capitalism. Slavery is a different system. It's a master and a slave. The master doesn't hire the slave. There's no need. The master owns the slave. In capitalism, the employer doesn't own you. It may feel like that occasionally, but he doesn't legally own you. In feudalism, it's yet again different. It's a lord and a serf. A serf who kind of belongs on the land, has obligations to the lord, but the lord doesn't hire the serf, doesn't pay him a wage, but there were markets in serf. The unique thing about capitalism is not, therefore, a market. The unique thing about capitalism is the relationship in production, in how goods and services are produced. It's a relationship that is not master-slave, that is not lord-serf. It is a very particular arrangement, employer-employee. And in that relationship lies a fundamental conflict. Tension, anger, resentment. Why? Because some people are doing all the work and producing more than they get. A more that we nowadays call the surplus, the extra. And if you're a capitalist, an employer, what of course is your interest? To give the worker the least possible while getting the most out of them because that's the biggest surplus they can get. And the more surplus they have, the more secure they'll be. In capitalism, it turns out we've got exactly the same kind of system as we had in slavery and feudalism. Why? Because the worker has to produce more a surplus than he gets. Just as the master got the surplus the slave produced, or the feudal lord got the surplus that the serf produced. It's nobody's fault. It's the way the system is set up. What's the alternative? When the people who produce the surplus, the workers, are themselves the people who get the surplus. If all the workers together make a cooperative, then they aren't split between the employers and the employees because both positions are occupied by every person in the operation. There's no split. How would that work? Take any factory, take any office, take any store, change it as follows. No more board of directors. Don't need it. Here's how we're going to do it. You come to work and you sit around making the decisions. All the decisions that used to be made by the capitalists. Workers become their own board of directors. Or to say the same thing another way, the worker capitalist division dissolves.
If you made all the workers democratically get together and decide how to distribute the wealth they've all together created, they would never give a handful of people more money than they know what to do with while everybody else is worrying about sending their kid to college because they can't afford it. when you're discussing a new technology that might pollute the air or the water. The decision is made by the major shareholders and the board of directors, a tiny group of people who typically live in gated communities in a lovely leafy residence far away from the factory or the office or the store that pollutes. So they can make the investment in the new technology and reap the profits if the workers who live and work and depend on the enterprise made the decisions, they wouldn't do it that often because they're the ones that breathe the air and drink the water. So they'd be much more sensitive to the real cost. Every technological invention justified itself on the grounds that by this new machine, we could get more done with less effort. But when those innovations are put into a capitalist economic system, the people who put the technology in want to make profit out of it. For example, if a machine allows the workers to do twice as much as before, they fire half of the workforce. The remaining half works with the new machine, produces as much as before. The company realizes a fantastic profit because it doesn't have to pay half the workers' wages, which they can keep for themselves. Here's an alternative. Let every worker do half as much work as he or she did before. Let's run the working day four hours instead of eight. The workers will have engaged an enormous amount of leisure to pay attention to their own development, to their families, to their communities. If we use technology that way, we would use it to help the mass of people enjoy a better life rather than a small percentage of the people enjoy a greater profit. The problem was with technology. The problem was with the system that decides how to use that technology. is framed in economic languages and I realized that rather than fighting against it I wanted to walk back towards it and try and reclaim economics try and reclaim its roots I mean economics from the ancient Greek means household management and when Xenophon first wrote a, a pamphlet called The Economist he was talking about the management of a single estate how should you manage your slaves and your vineyards? Should you allow your wife to be in charge or not? And towards the end of his life, he looked up to the next level. He looked at the management of the city-state, his hometown of Athens, and began to think about the economics of managing that. And then 2,000 years later in Scotland, Adam Smith raised our sights to the next level and said, actually, economics is about managing the nation-state and asking why one nation thrives while another has not yet taken off. Well, I think it's time for us to move to the next level and go from the household to the city to the nation. Now it's the planetary household we need to think about. So to me, economics in the 21st century means 
managing our planetary household. And there could be no more urgent and exciting cause to be involved in. We need a generation of household managers who are managing our planetary home in the interest of all its inhabitants. So in that vein, in that spirit, I walk back towards economics and want to reclaim that word and broaden it so that we actually start to think about managing our household this century. You start the book, Donut Economics, which comes out on the 6th of April this year. You start it with a powerful statement that you say, the most powerful tool in economics is not money, nor even algebra. It is a pencil. Because with a pencil, you can redraw the world. And I think part of that goes back to what you were saying before about reimagining and the image within economics. But also you bring in this assumption of economics being that which relates to money or algebra or equations or diagrams. So if you were to take that problem or that challenge and you were to go upstream to the root of it, why have over over history, why has economics become reduced and reduced to numbers and diagrams and this type of thing? Why has it come to this? That is a great question. And it fascinates me as to how it's become framed so narrowly. I would say one of the major reasons why economics has been reduced to a very particular kinds of diagrams and very particular numbers and algebra is, I would say it goes back to 1870. When, uh, in the UK, there was William Stanley Jevons, who was um, an engineer who wanted becoming an economist. In Switzerland, there was um, Leon Valeras. In Austria, there was Karl Menger. They wanted to make economics a science as respectable as physics. This was the ambition. They saw the towering genius of Isaac Newton who had discovered the underlying laws of motion of the world. And he could describe the movement of falling apples or rotating planets with his physics. And on it had been built incredible empires. And they wanted, they explicitly said, we want to make economics as respectable science as physics. And so they took it directly as a metaphor, just as a pendulum swings to rest because gravity pulls it down. So markets are drawn to equilibrium because prices pull them into position. And they, they, they loved playing with this metaphor. They even drew their diagrams in the style of Newton. So if you look back at um, Jevons's diagrams of supply and demand, they were drawn in the style of Newton's diagrams of a falling object. So it was the desire to be like physics, which then again drives the mathematization, not just from the diagrams resembling physics, but then the mathematization to, to pin this thing down but also to find out the underlying laws of motion. And I think that's probably been the most pernicious result of this desire to be like physics, to look for the laws of motion, as if the economy, the way the world works, was driven by these laws that we needed to discover. And I, I, I think that's really led us astray over the last 100 years and has given rise to a, a very strong neoliberal story that let the market do its work, market forces, again, the language of mechanics, market forces will bring the economy into its right position. Don't get in their way, they will sort things out. In your book, Donut Economics, you redraw economics, you go from these, these um, Newton-like forms and algebraic equations to something more circular, something with space, with maybe even ambiguity or potential for looking different in different places um, and, and value oriented as well. So can you talk about that, 
that new model, that drawing that you have come come to to be the leader of. So the donut. So tell us about it and and how does this change how we look at economics? So in in the book I've I'm I'm critiquing the old ways of drawing but I believe we're at a point in the world where critique is not enough. You have to go beyond and you have to be propositional. You have to stick your neck out and say I believe in this, I stand for this new diagram even if it's evolving and it's imperfect. And so that's what I've tried to do in the book, showing old economics through seven diagrams. And now replacing them with seven propositions for new diagrams that are part of a 21st century journey that we're on. And one of them is focusing on what is the goal of the economy? Well, the old diagram that told us what the goal of the economy was, was one that almost now had to be drawn because it was so implicit in the language. It was the goal of GDP growth, which is just an ever rising line going up, 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 this, this deeply rooted notion that forward and up is good. So we have an ever rising line of GDP growth. But we know that GDP growth and growth itself is uh, not bringing all the well-being that we want in the world. It, the, the, the process we have now of GDP growth is leading to extraordinary environmental degradation and extraordinary inequalities as well. So I wanted to replace that with a new vision. And the one I've drawn, slightly crazy though it sounds, looks like a donut, an American one with a hole in the middle. So if you imagine an American donut with a hole in the middle, that hole in the middle is the that the whole the whole donut is trying to represent a vision of the world in which we can meet the needs of all within the means of our planet that's the vision of human well-being that is depicting so that every person has the resources and the, the abilities to meet their needs and rights to food water health education housing community connection energy political voice so we can meet all of those so that we can all lead lives of dignity and opportunity, but that we can do so within the means of the planet, within this extraordinary benevolent phase of our planet's history, the last 11,000 years in which the planet's stability has been so generous to allow humanity to flourish. So the donut tries to capture that in one image. So if you think of this American donut with a hole in the middle, when people falling, are falling short on life's essentials, they would be falling into that hole in the middle of the donut. That's a space of human deprivation. And we want to get them out of that hole in the middle and into the donut itself. But if we put too much pressure on Earth's life-giving systems, such as on the climate system or the fresh water cycle or the oceans or the ozone layer, we would push our planet out of this extraordinary stability that it's given us. And that would be like going beyond the donut's outer crust. So you don't want to fall short um, on human well-being into the center of the donut and you don't want to overshoot the planet's capacity beyond the outside edges of the donut we want to be in that donut shaped space in between the two and suddenly when you draw it like that the shape or the feel the pulse of what progress looks like is no longer this ever rising line going up 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 it's a thriving balance it's a balance between meeting the needs of all within the means of our planet and it's going to take all our human ingenuity this century to figure out how to do that for 10 billion perhaps more people all our ingenuity about different ways of governing ourselves the kinds of technologies we use the different ways of provisioning whether through the market the household the state or the commons to figure out how to do that wisely and well that's what makes it so exciting to be an economist now one of the seven invitations to think like a 21st century economist at the end is to go from growth addicted to growth agnostic. And you've, you've talked a little bit about growth. 
Um, what do you mean by that? How are we growth addicted and how could we be growth agnostic? So the, the drive to replace GDP has been going on for over a decade. Um, people, well, actually for 30 years, let's say, people coming up with alternative indicators to GDP and some, and some powerful ones and compelling ones. But I think we would be wrong to think that just because we came up with a good indicator that better captured what human progress might look like, that somehow this really would just replace GDP as a metric. And the reason I think that is because over hundreds of years, and particularly I'd say over the last hundred years, economies, in, particularly in um, high-income industrialized economies with very complex financial systems, those economies have been altered throughout their process, at the, the political level, at the social and cultural level, um, to become dependent upon growth so that the financial system, the political system, and even the social system expects, depends, and demands continual growth of GDP. Um, I'll give you examples of that. So the financial system demands it because you've got first the financial search for gain, as Polanyi wrote in the 1940s, that search for gain really transformed how economies were designed and how that, that attempt to accumulate um, and, and the power of capital transforms um, an economy so that it's structured now around this notion of continual growth. Positive interest rates put in place the need for growth in order to repay those positive interest rates. Politically, nations, nations' economies are addicted to growth. And I would say one of the ways is because um, every government, think of the, the G20, they get together every year and there's a portrait taken of all the G20 leaders. I think of that as the G20 family photo. No leader wants to be ousted from the G20 family photo. But if they don't keep their economy growing, they may find themselves ousted by the next East Asian powerhouse that's coming through. So what matters is not absolute wealth of a nation. It's relative wealth in terms of your geopolitical power. So there's a real challenge there that at the geopolitical level, every country needs to keep growing in order to keep up with its neighbors in terms of having geopolitical power and military power. How do we crack that nut? That's a real, real lock-in to a growth mentality. Governments also want their economies to keep growing because rather than raising taxes, they'd like tax revenue to grow because the, the economy has grown, not because they had to put the percentage of tax up. So the desire to have low taxes means if tax revenue is going to grow, your economy really needs to be growing so you're getting more revenue back. A, another lock-in to that growth mentality. And then the last one, the social lock-in, a 100 years of consumerism, uh, kicked off, I'd say, by Edward Bernays, the nephew of Lucian Freud. Fascinatingly, he took his uncle's psychological psychotherapy theories and applied them to shopping therapy and realized that he can influence people and persuade them that by buying something new, you will transform your life and make it better. We've been addicted to that psychological consumerism over 100 years. How do we overcome that now and, and unhook from that deeply rooted desire now that Buying something more is what makes our lives better. So financially, politically and socially, we've been hooked into growth and hooked into dependence on GDP. And the way I like to think of it is that today we have an economy that has to grow whether or not it makes us thrive. What we need is an economy that makes us thrive whether or not it grows. And I say very clearly whether or not it grows, because for some people, they very clearly believe that uh, GDP growth must stop 
and it must GDP growth must go down. I think when we look at the transformations that are required in our economies and our societies in terms of shifting to renewable energy, in terms of creating regenerative economics that uh, uses a circular pattern of resource use, in terms of redistributing resources between people, it's not obvious to me where the growth, where the GDP first needs to go up and then maybe it'll flatten and go down or maybe it'll go down and then go up. I can't predict that and or foresee that. And I find it strange when people feel such a conviction that it will go up or it will go down. GDP is just the number of goods and services, the value of goods and services exchanged in the market today. It's only one segment of those different forms of provisioning we care about. So I think of it as a re- response variable. It should be responding to the design needs of the economy. And that means it might go up and it might go down. If we're going to be able to allow it to respond, it has. To, we have to overcome that addiction to its growth because we're currently locked into it growing. So we don't have the space to redesign our economy around it being regenerative and distributive. We're still locked into growth. Yeah. So being part part of being growth agnostic is again this complexity or systems way of looking at it, where you really can't just isolate one thing and and predict where it goes because it's within a whole complex system of things that are happening. Yes. And I would just say that I think our economy, our societies have become deeply um, addicted to growth at a very psychological level. And the, the, the cognitive scientist, George Lakoff has done some fantastic work on the metaphors we live by. And one of the most profound metaphors we live by, he says, is the idea that progress is forwards and up. Think of a child learning to crawl and then walk. Think of the way that we, we draw humanity's you know, the depiction of humanity coming from the apes and up to Homo sapiens, it's drawn as a lolloping ape and then standing up Homo erectus and walking, striding forward, forward and up. So we, we're, we're like in some sort of Peter Pan phase of economics. We think we're always going to be growing, but nothing in nature grows forever. And if you take anything that you love and imagine what would happen to it if it grew forever, it will either destroy itself or destroy the system upon which it depends. Yeah, I think about cancer. As- right. And and people often say, well, cancer grows forever. But even cancer doesn't grow forever because it, <laughs> it kills the host on which it depends. So from a system's point of view, growth is a healthy phase that then reaches maturity, whether it's of a tree, of your children's feet, of the Amazon forest. Why would that not also apply to human activity that's monetized? Why would there not be a point at which it's reached a mature size within the life-giving systems that sustain us? It seems very strange to me that economists have a deeply set belief that it, that growth can just continue forever. If you admit to yourself or begin to recognize that perhaps the economy's growth might be most healthy if it's like all other kinds of growth in, in the universe, which is it goes through growth phase and then it matures. Then we can ask ourselves a question, where are we now on that growth journey? To which I also don't know the answer. Are some economies reaching the peak of their growth phase? I don't know. But if they're growth addicted, they won't be allowed to. That's why we need to be growth agnostic. So that if we're reaching the peak of growth at which it's, it's the, the, the growth phase is needs to be allowed to stop and the economy can just be, become, as some would say, steady state. It's still large, it's as large as it is today, but it stops expanding. It can only do that if it's no longer addicted to growth.
For most of history, the overwhelming majority of the Earth's inhabitants have owned more or less nothing. The clothes they stood up in, some bowls, a pot and a pan, perhaps a broom, and if things were going really well, a few farming implements. Nations and peoples remained consistently poor. Global GDP did not grow at all from year to year. The world was in aggregate as hard up in 1800 as it had been at the beginning of time. However, starting in the early 18th century, in the countries of northwestern Europe, a remarkable phenomenon occurred. Economies began to expand and wages to rise. Families who'd never before had any money beyond what they needed just to survive found they could go shopping for small luxuries: a comb or a mirror, a spare set of underwear, a pillow, some thicker boots or a towel. Their expenditure created a virtuous economic cycle. The more they spent, the more businesses grew, the more wages rose. By the middle of the 18th century, observers recognized that they were living through a period of epochal change that historians have since described as the world's first consumer revolution. It was in Britain where the changes were most marked. Enormous new industries sprang up to cater for the widespread demand for goods that had once been the preserve of the very rich alone. In England cities, you could buy furniture from Chippendale, Heppelwhite, and Sheraton. Pottery from Wedgwood and Derby, cutlery from the smitheries of Sheffield, and hats, shoes, and dresses featured in the best-selling magazines like the Gallery of Fashion and the Ladies' Magazine. Styles for clothes and hair, which had formerly gone unchanged for decades, now altered every year, often in extremely theatrical and impractical directions. In the early 1770s, there was a craze for decorated wigs so tall their tops could only be accessed by standing on a chair. It was fun for the cartoonists. So vivid and numerous were the consumer novelties that the austere Dr. Johnson wryly wondered whether prisoners were also soon to be hanged in a new way. The Christian Church looked on and did not approve. Up and down England, clergymen delivered bitter sermons against the new materialism. They called it vanity, which was a sin. Sons and daughters were to be kept away from shops. God would not look kindly on those who paid more attention to household decoration than the state of their souls. But there now emerged an intellectual revolution that sharply altered the understanding of the role of vanity in an economy. In 1723, a London physician called Bernard Mandeville published an economic tract titled "The Fable of the Bees," which proposed that, contrary to centuries of religious and moral thinking, what made countries rich and therefore safe, honest, generous, spirited, and strong was a very minor, unelevated, and apparently undignified activity. Shopping for pleasure, it was the consumption of what Mandeville called fripperies—hats, bonnets, gloves, butter dishes, soup tureens, shoehorns, and hair clips—that provided the engine for national prosperity and allowed the government to do in practice what the church only knew how to sermonize about in theory: make a genuine difference to the lives of the weak and the poor. The only way to generate wealth, argued Mandeville, was to ensure high demand for absurd and unnecessary things. Of course, no one needed embroidered handbags, silk-lined slippers, or ice creams. But it was a blessing that they could be prompted by fashion to want them. For on the back of demand for such trifles, workshops could be built, apprentices trained, and hospitals funded. Mandeville shocked his audience with the starkness of the choice he placed before them. A nation could either be very high-minded, spiritually elevated, intellectually refined, and dirt poor, or a slave to luxury and idle consumption. And very rich, 
Mandeville's dark thesis went on to convince almost all the great Anglophone economists and political thinkers of the 18th century. There were nevertheless some occasional departures from the new economic orthodoxy. One of the most spirited and impassioned voices was that of Switzerland's greatest philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Shocked by the impact of the consumer revolution on the manners and atmosphere of his native Geneva, he called for a return to a simpler, older way of life, of the sort he had experienced in alpine villages or read about in travellers' accounts of the native tribes of North America. In the remote corners of Appenzell or the vast forests of Missouri, there was, blessedly, no concern for fashion and no one-upmanship around hair extensions. Rousseau recommended closing Geneva's borders and imposing crippling taxes on luxury goods so that people's energies could be redirected towards non-material values. He looked back with fondness to the austere, martial spirit of Sparta. However, even if Rousseau disagreed with Mandeville, he did not seek to deny the basic premise behind his analysis. It truly appeared to be a choice between decadent consumption and wealth on the one hand and virtuous restraint and poverty on the other. It was simply that Rousseau unusually preferred virtue to wealth. The parameters of this debate have continued to dominate economic thinking ever since. We re-encounter them in ideological arguments between capitalists and communists and free marketeers and environmentalists. But for most of us, the debate is no longer pertinent. We simply accept that we will live in consumer economies, with some very unfortunate side effects to them. Crass advertising, foodstuffs that are unhealthy for us, products that are disconnected from any reasonable assessment of our needs. All this in exchange for economic growth and high employment. We have chosen wealth over virtue. An irony-laden acceptance of this dichotomy is what underpins the approach of many pop artists in mid-20th century America. For example, Kleiss Oldenburg developed a reputation for taking modest consumer items, many of them food-related, and reproducing them at enormous scale, usually in outdoor settings, in vibrant polyester or vinyl. In city squares where one might once have expected to find statues in honour of political leaders or religious saints, one now came across outsized hamburgers, giant cheesecakes, huge fries decked with ketchup, or, perhaps Oldenburg's most famous work, a 12-metre-high stainless steel inverted ice cream cone. Oldenburg's vast versions of small things playfully directed our attention to the peculiar dependence of modern economies on the mass consumption of what are, in human terms, some deeply negligible products. Yet the scale of Oldenburg's objects was only superficially absurd, because it rather precisely reflected their actual importance in our collective economic destinies. Nevertheless, as Oldenburg seemed to concede, it was peculiar to be living in a civilization founded on the back of buns and sweetened tomato paste, a bathos hinted at by the deflated, detumescent appearance of many of the giant burgers, hot dogs and pizzas. The one question that's rarely been asked is whether there might be a way to attenuate the dispiriting choice, to draw on the best aspects of consumerism on the one hand and high-mindedness on the other, without suffering their worst sides moral decadence and profound poverty. Might it be possible for a society to develop that allows for consumer spending and therefore provides employment and welfare, yet of a kind directed at something other than vanities and superfluities? Might we shop for something other than nonsense? In other words, might we have wealth and a degree of virtue? It is this possibility of which we find some intriguing hints in the work of Adam Smith, an 18th century economist too often read as a blunt apologist for all aspects of consumerism, but in fact one of its more subtle and visionary analysts. 
In his book, The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, Adam Smith seems at points willing to concede to key aspects of Mandeville's argument. Consumer societies do help the poor by providing employment based around satisfying what are often rather suboptimal purchases. Smith was as ready as other economists to mock the triviality of some consumer choices, while admiring their consequences. All those embroidered lace handkerchiefs, jeweled snuffboxes and miniature temples made of cream for dessert, they were flippant, he conceded, but they encouraged trade, created employment and generated immense wealth, and could therefore be firmly defended on this score alone. However, Smith held out some fascinating hopes for the future. He pointed out that consumption didn't invariably have to involve the trading of frivolous things. He had seen the expansion of the Edinburgh book trade and knew how large a market higher education might become. He understood how much wealth was being accumulated through the construction of Edinburgh's extremely handsome and noble new town. He understood that humans have many higher needs that require a lot of labour and intelligence and work to fulfil, but that lie outside of capitalist enterprise as conceived of by realists like Bernard Mandeville. Among these are need for education, for self-understanding, for beautiful cities and for rewarding social lives. The ultimate goal of capitalism in Adam Smith's view was to tackle happiness in all its complexities, psychological and not just merely material. The capitalism of our times still hasn't entirely come round to resolving the awkward choices that Bernard Mandeville and Jean-Jacques Rousseau circled. But the crucial hope for the future is that we may not forever need to be making money off rather exploitative, silly or vain consumer appetites. That we may also learn to generate enormous profits from helping people as consumers and producers in the truly important and ambitious aspects of their lives. The reform of capitalism hinges on an odd-sounding but critical task, a new kind of consumerism, the conception of an economy focused around buying and selling services and goods focused on our higher needs. Now, a quick reminder that if you have any consumerism to partake in, either to hold up the pillars of society through the purchase of frivolities or to help move our culture into a new paradigm by making purchases to fulfill your higher needs, and you're going to do it through the big box store in the cloud, just make sure to use and bookmark my affiliate link on my website so that a portion of all the proceeds of every purchase goes to support the production of this show. Just another of the ironic conflicts of interest people like me so often get stuck with as we try to live in one world while we build another. Anyway, that last clip is a really interesting one to me that I think addresses the false dichotomy I said Sam used in, in the beginning of the show because it shows how consumerism and, by extension, capitalism have played a role for good, but there's still every reason to believe we should strive for something better. Whereas Sam said, You may think capitalism is two shades away from slavery. I think capitalism is the greatest reason abject poverty has been in free fall relative to human history. I say that's a false dichotomy because those are not actually opposing positions from one another, as both could be simultaneously true if incomplete statements. I don't have to argue against the past benefits of capitalism in order to warn about its future drawbacks. To be clear, there are a lot of downsides to capitalism that have done a lot of damage over the past couple hundred years, and we could debate those, but 
That would be an endless sort of weighing of pros and cons, uh, probably with each of us giving different weights to different particular issues that we care more about. So for the sake of argument, I am willing to concede all of the past benefits of capitalism uncontested and still make the argument that we need something better going forward. I believe that an evolution in capitalism has the potential to bring about greater human happiness and tranquility, largely by shrinking the inequality gap, but also by reshaping society for the better, for instance, reducing or eliminating the conflict between bosses and employees, as described in today's show. Um, But more importantly, our environmental degradation, biodiversity collapse, and climate change are the result of the biggest market failure in capitalist or even human history. If we keep going on our current path, it won't be the first time humans badly mismanaged their resources and wiped themselves out, but it will be the largest instance of the phenomenon. That's why the concept of donut economics that we heard described today is so important. And now, finally, I have one more clip for you that, in a roundabout kind of way, uh, I think puts a finer point on my thoughts about individualism. Now, our Trump supporter Sam says that personal liberty is at the top of his issue list, but he never said exactly how extreme he is in that position, so he may not be calling for a total free market libertarian nirvana, Uh, so this clip may not be a direct response to his position, but I think it illustrates an important point by looking at the extremes. Stephen Molyneux and other extreme libertarians have the idea that Government is all bad because no entity should be allowed to initiate force against another in a fair society. Right. It believes that everything would be best taken care of by a completely free market once we get the Iraq, got rid of government entirely. So, assuming the society existed, what do you see as the biggest reason that a free market-driven, no-government society just wouldn't work? So, one of the big things that separates humans from other animal species is that there are animal species that are able to work together in large numbers towards a shared goal, but not in a flexible way, right? So animals that, like, for example, ants would be an example, or bees, they can work together in really large groups to build their um, uh, ant farm or whatever you would call it, nest. I don't know what the thing is called, right? Or bees to... I'm sorry, a colony, exactly. Or bees who can work, but they can only work together in really specific ways. They are not able to work together in large numbers in anything other than these instinctual ways. And then there are uh, other, other animal species that can work together in more flexible ways. So for example, we could think of the great apes or uh, whales, for example, but they can't really work together in large groups, right? So the big distinguishing factor, the reason humans have been able to advance is because we can work together in large groups, but also flexibly on making a building or organizing a society or government or creating airplanes or whatever the case may be. When you eliminate that by saying government is oppression, taxation is slavery, everyone just at every time needs to be allowed to do whatever it is that they want, you cannot get the level of progress that we have had in a literal sense because you are making it impossible to actually work together in this way. Now, the libertarian will retort by saying, no, no, David, if the free market dictated that the best path forward, the most profitable path forward was 
for humans to completely freely choose to organize and work together on some of the big projects that government would otherwise do, like road building or whatever the case may be, then they would do it, which then makes it a semantic difference because you're effectively forming a type of government. And as soon as one person doesn't want that, then you get back to the exact situation you're in now. Now to recap, we've just heard clips today starting with David Pakman explaining how there are many, many forms of socialism, and that clip goes on for another 15 minutes beyond what I used, uh, because there's obviously a lot to say on the topic, and and so I recommend uh, watching that in full, and also his follow-up video that he did in response to a critic in which he dives deeper into an explanation of why he refers to ostensibly left-wing dictatorships like Mao and Stalin as having used classically right-wing organizational tactics, basically arguing that uh, a better definition of left versus right in terms of governmental organization is that on the left, we organize more horizontally, and on the right, they organize more vertically. So the left goes for more egalitarian horizontal organization, and the right uh, is, is more vertically organized and authoritarian. So using this framing, a communist dictatorship shouldn't be seen as, let's say, a mirror image of a fascist dictatorship, but as a perversion of the egalitarian ideals espoused by the left, made tyrannical by the decision to convert the left-wing movement into a vertically organized, authoritarian, and by definition, right-wing state. Pretty interesting perspective. Uh, anyway, after that, we heard Richard Wolff on Economic Update explain that socialists broadly are not against individualism, but instead see socialism as a vehicle for greater individual freedom for all, rather than more freedom for a few and far less freedom for the many. The Laura Flanders Show spoke with Kate Rayworth about her book and economic philosophy of donut economics and the metaphor of tending to the economy as you would a garden rather than as you would control a machine. Sustainable Human on YouTube produced a video featuring Richard Wolff juxtaposing the exploitation of capitalism with the benefits of worker ownership. Upstream also spoke with Kate Rayworth about her vision of donut economics and the problem of our addiction to growth. The School of Life on YouTube took us through the history and potential future of consumerism. And finally, we just heard David Beckman explaining humans' fundamental nature to give up some of their personal liberty in order to work together for the greater good of the group. And a couple of last thoughts. First on today's sources, uh, any regular listener will have likely heard from David Beckman, Economic Update, and Laura Flanders before today, uh, but I want to highly recommend both Sustainable Human and the School of Life uh, YouTube channels if you want to dive more into these and related issues. Also, Upstream has quickly become my favorite new economics podcast in the past couple of years, so please check them out as well, Upstream. And finally, one last note on individualism. Hopefully, I've put to rest the idea that I, or progressives in general, or even socialists in particular, are against individualism, or much less think it's dangerous. What I think is that it is misguided to use it as a political North Star. First of all, I think, as was just described in that clip, that when a group of humans are given complete personal liberty, 
the very first thing most of them are going to do is voluntarily give up some of their liberty in order to work for the good of the group. And they do this because acting for the good of the group is good for the individual. Giving up freedom and working for others can very legitimately be seen as a completely selfish act. Secondly, it almost invariably tends to be the people who are the least aware of the benefits of society who advocate for personal liberty above all else. These tend to be the people with the fewest structural problems in society. Sam said that personal liberty is a social justice issue because the individual is the ultimate minority, which frankly sounds to me like a propaganda phrase Sam picked up somewhere that attempts to hijack the good name and high ideals of social justice in order to twist it into support for a cause that would fundamentally chip away at all of the gains made by advocates for real social justice. Um, Because, of course, there is no universal definition of an individual. Everyone goes through life experiencing the world in very different ways from each other based on variables including race, gender, sexuality, presentation, disability, class, location, and literally dozens of others. So every person relates to the world as a member of dozens of these groups, whether that person realizes it or not, or whether or not they want to, because the world is certainly going to relate to them based on all of those groups they belong to. Striving for personal liberty above all doesn't do anything to break down the barriers these groupings create. It only reinforces the status quo. Even if you would like to fight for social justice in all of its forms, but you think that the libertarian style of personal liberty falls into that same category, then I think you've just been misled. As we learned in today's episode, advocating for collectivism the way most forms of socialism do is not inherently anti-individualism, but the philosophy of a libertarian personal liberty is a form of structural advocacy against collective action in general and on issues of social justice and civil rights in particular. Okay, as always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Ariel. You're a member from Memphis. I've called in a couple of times before, and I just wanted to say I am completely on board with the book club idea. I was a little bummed that I couldn't find an audiobook version because that's the easiest way for me to consume information right now. But the upside is getting it through Amazon and the best of the left link means it should at least contribute to the show. I was also very excited to see that Rules for Radicals is available as an audiobook, so I'll be consuming that as well. Thanks for the recommendations, and I look forward to the discussion. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is Jeff in Charlotte, originally from Cleveland. I've called in before. I enjoy your show. I was calling to reply to your program regarding Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and his paternalistic views. I do understand he did have some very paternalistic views. Uh, and this was a man who was assassinated 50 years ago, who would be 89 years old today. My question that I always have for people is, where would their mindset be today when it comes to how they reacted at a certain time and in a certain era? That was a very paternalistic era in which the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was raised in, although his views were progressive for that time. The question is, had he not been assassinated, would Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King have those same paternalistic views today? 
And I'm willing to believe, although we cannot predict futures, I'm willing to, to believe that he would have progressed and not be so paternalistic. And I look back at other people throughout history, Margaret Sanger, for example, Planned Parenthood, she had a very paternalistic views towards minorities. But those views were the views of that time, although she was ahead of her time for that age. So I just wanted to add that part in. I would like to thank the fact that you talked about his uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People Campaign and Movement, because what many overlook is that when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, it was only after he started to stand up for economic empowerment. And that's what threatened the masses. Thank you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I have just finished listening to your episode on Martin Luther King and thought I would offer a few insights. I have been studying Dr. King now for about 10 years. And the information which was brought out on your recent episode got me to thinking, particularly on the aspect of um, Dr. King's, quote, paternalism. Now, this has become a very in vogue statement to make recently about his concern with black men over black women. And I'm often remindful of people who I find who want to talk about this, that one, this was the 1960s. Two, in the black community, black men often take positions of protection over their women because it was often through the woman that the white men wish to do the most damage upon the psyche of the black family. Thus, by raping in degrading through forceful touching of a black female, they could show the black male that he had no power over the white society in general. This is often missed in the white society because they do not understand the inner workings of our community. Secondly, in a speech that has recently come to light from 1964 called Summer of Our Discontent, Dr. King makes a mention of the fact that the media was uh, making a big deal of women in the workplace. But this was specifically for white women in the workplace because in the speech, Dr. King mentions in the black community, it has been a tradition that the black woman was always working. She was always engaged in labor. So that was not something unique to us. It was, uh, or excuse me, it wasn't something new to us. 
in in fact in most poor white families it wasn't even new to them white women had always been working so we need to definitely remember the context of what dr king was about and not just throw around this new in vogue term called paternalism on paternalism black men have been routinely accused of being paternalistic which to me is ironic because in the society black men have so little power and in many instances black females are preferred in the workplace now because of the system and how uh, I've literally heard human resource personnel say this that black women count twice for them so they can say we have a woman and we have a minority so uh, this is all stuff that needs to be kept in the forefront of the mind as we are engaging in modernist critiques of Dr. King critiques which we are not necessarily making um on a national stage when it comes to other people of a uh, high caliber particularly in the white community so um I, i just wanted to share that and again the speech title if anyone wants to look it up is called summer of our discontent it is a brilliant piece of oratory thank you jay for your work and thank you for that brilliant episode wish i had more time to discuss it but uh until the next time peace Thanks for listening everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, or if you'd like to goad me into crafting an entire episode in response to you by either misrepresenting something I've said or by saying something I disagree with, uh, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick update and thanks to everyone again for sending me to Bhutan that that's the the long and short of it uh, the climate ride fundraiser deadline has come and gone it's still uh, open you can still uh, donate if you like uh, the, the last i mentioned of it we were sort of down to the wire and had a ways to go essentially what happened is i was so afraid we weren't going to make the goal i chipped in a big chunk myself sent out emails to everyone I could think of including everyone who I'd already emailed and everyone who had already donated even and uh, with with the time crunch and and maybe the inspiration of me finally putting my own money where my mouth is we came in with such flying colors that we surpassed the goal by more than I had donated myself so so it, it all went very well Thanks again to everyone who donated. I am now coming to you from a Bangkok bathroom, which sounds far worse than it is. It's just the part of my hotel room that's quiet enough and I'm getting out a couple final episodes for you before I head to Bhutan. If you listen to this on the day it posts, I am leaving for Bhutan tomorrow morning ungodly early. And so I'll be in 
more or less radio silence for the next week and a half or so. I hope to have one more new episode out for you. While I'm gone, I'll just set it on, a, on an automatic timer and, and that'll go out for you if things work well. Let's see. So I just wanted to say, uh, again, thanks to everyone for donating, that the show schedule may be a little wonky and I'm, I'm going to end up inevitably taking an episode or two off uh, while still in Bhutan and, uh, and to let you know that it turns out I'm going to be spending my 35th birthday in Bhutan, and uh, and, and so I'm very excited about that. Amanda is uh, is coming with, not for climate ride, but uh, afterward to to meet up with me in Bhutan, spend just a couple extra days there. That you know this opportunity is so rare, so it's such a strange uh, event that you know she couldn't pass up the opportunity to to make that happen. So uh, so all of that is happening. It's very exciting, and you guys absolutely made it happen. Couldn't couldn't have done it without you. And and then just my last note in response to the two voicemails, well, the, the, the last two voicemails we heard, um, I, I absolutely appreciate those, you know, uh, additional sort of nuances uh, about Martin Luther King Jr. And what I will say is like my takeaway from the MLK show and the discussion of his so-called paternalism is not to expose him for not being as good as we thought he was. My takeaway is that we should never expect for anyone's words to stand the test of time indefinitely. So the first lesson is to take people's words in the context in which they were spoken. Uh, you know, one, one caller definitely said that. And the other is to keep that in mind when quoting them in perpetuity. And, and so, you know, one, one of the best points that I was made in the show is that if you continue quoting King from his own context and fail to recognize all of the, the, the nuances of his particular circumstance and you project that forward then that becomes damaging over time. Always looking back to King is, is how you end up with, you know, really damaging uh, respectability politics or, uh, you know, looking back to King and quoting him sort of mindlessly could have pretty damaging uh, gender-based uh, consequences going forward. So just really interesting stuff to look, uh, to look at closely. And I, I think there's a lot of agreement going on between myself and, and the callers. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad they just sort of added, uh, added some nuance to it. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, of course. Keep the comments coming in at the number to dial 202-999-3991. Huge thanks, of course, to everyone who has been supporting Climate Ride. That is still open. Of course, thanks to everyone who supports the show by making donations or becoming members. You can do that at patreon.com slash bestofleft. You know, as, as I mentioned, my 35th birthday is coming up. If you're looking for a gift idea, memberships are always in style. Uh, and of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.